0: Talking Tech Policy is recorded on Nangarwal lands. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge their continuing connection to country and the ongoing contributions of their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, who were, among many things, the first Australian tech innovators. How do we ensure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of the Talking Tech Policy podcast. I'm a lawyer, a diplomat, and until recently, I was Australia's expert to the United Nations on cyber issues. About six months ago, I joined the Australian National University to establish the Tech Policy Design Centre. We've launched this podcast because we want to encourage more people to get involved in discussions about how technology is shaping our lives. My guest today is Julie Imman-Grant. Julie is Australia's eSafety Commissioner and this is really a role that I think all Australians should be very proud of. We were the first country in the world to have uh, this position and Julie is our current commissioner. Uh, You have previously worked at Microsoft, Twitter, Adobe. You've also worked in the NGO sector and one of the favourite things that I like about your bio is that in 2020, the World Economic Forum designated you as one of the world's most influential leaders in revolutionary revolutionising government. And I think government needs some revolutionising. So that jumped out to me. Julie, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for
1: having me and for the kind introduction. And and actually, what's interesting is my first job um, out of uni was in the US Congress. So my career thus far has been bookended by roles in government. One, you know, obviously in Congress in the US One, a very different role as a legislative assistant and and now as commissioner for the the Australian government. But that bookending has brought really interesting perspectives to my career because I really was at technology policy ground zero in the early 1990s before there was an internet and, you know, working at that cross-section of social policy, justice, safety, technology, and it's just been an incredible both an evolution and a revolution.
0: <laughs> and a bit of a roller coaster involved as well. Mm. Actually, in many of those roles that you've referred to, you you have focused on e-safety and I'd love to hear your thoughts on what was it about e-safety that particularly drew your attention and why is it an area that you are quite so passionate about?
1: Well, I have worked across a broad range of issues in the technology space. And I guess I'd start by saying, you know, I joined the technology sector, specifically Microsoft, in 1995 in Washington, D.C. as one of the first lobbyists. And before that, when I was working on the Hill, um, I grew up in the electorate that Microsoft was located in. So I, you know, I did quite a bit of work from the um, legislative side. But I really believed in the, the, the power of technology and the power of the technology to do good. And you know, my my master's degree while I was in the not-for-profit sector in DC was really around the impact of, of technology on you know, society and culture. So it's just been something that's really fascinated me. And of course, technology and its impact upon people is really all what what online safety is about. It's about the third pillar of digital trust and for so long uh, privacy and security have really been at the forefront, but online safety is about personal harms or mitigating personal risks. And, you know, we want to see that elevated, but I've worked on tax issues. I've worked on, I worked on the clipper chip issue when um, encryption was a 56-bit and uh, the U.S. government didn't want 56-bit encryption and beyond being uh, exported outside of the United States. Permanent normal trade relations for China, H-1B visas, some really dry tax policy, and it was always, the online safety that was int- interesting to me because it had that social component and was about protecting the, our most vulnerable, our children. And so one of my first acts as, as a lobbyist for Microsoft was shaping the Communications Decency Act of 1996. And at the time, if you think about 1996, there were a very different set of players,
0: yeah.
1: AltaVista and AOL and Microsoft.
0: And the internet was what, three years
1: old? If that. Yeah. Um if that, and there was a real, I think a genuine concern that if the internet was overregulated or overtaxed, because at the time there were a lot of taxation proposals around e-commerce, everybody wanted a slice of the pie, but that it would really stop the potential and the growth of the internet in its tracks. But I think the cautionary tale here is you can't pass something in 1996 when you you know, Mark Zuckerberg was probably in junior high school. He wasn't thinking about creating the world's largest social network uh, mm-hmm. at the time. That you can't just let a significant piece of legislation like that lie fallow for 26 years, because over time, the unintended consequences of platforms not having to take responsibility for what's been happening on the platform leads us to the very situation we're in today, you know, to me, it's that, you know, there's still lots of benefits of technology, but it's a pretty toxic place. It's a there's a lack of civility. And clearly the rest of the world is waking up to the fact that there needs to be more focus on online safety. And we're, we're about to see a proliferation of online safety commissioners, uh, like us, yeah. probably see at least five or ten in the next few years.
0: Yeah, and just for the the listeners who who don't have that background, the Communications Decency Act, which came in in 1996, effectively provides a shield to the U.S. companies that operate, saying that they're not publishers of content online, and it's really what prevents a lot of prosecution and action um, against them in the online safety space, but also in more broadly. So it's referred to as the shield. So uh, section 230 of the of the Communications Decency Act is ingrained on every tech policy experts must know list. Julie, one thing that that I'm particularly interested in in your career is that transition that you have made. So you you have worked in the public service or in service of the public. Uh, you've moved into industry, and now you've come back into a role that very much is in service of the public and requires giving frank and fearful frank and fearless, not fearful, <laughs> advice to government. Sometimes it's fearful, yeah. <laughs> depending on who you are. Exactly. Um. But one of the things we often talk about in the podcast is this this issue of knowledge asymmetry between industry and, and government and how do we actually empower government to have enough knowledge to be able to make sensible regulations and enforce sensible regulations in the space. And part of that, of course, is encouraging more people from industry to take on roles like yours. And when I make that comment, people sort of roll their eyes at me and say, oh, no one's going to do that. Why would you leave a high paying job in industry and come and take on a role in the public service? And Personally, I feel that is doing a disservice to many people who work in the tech industry who are purpose driven, who actually went into the industry because they want to have a positive impact. So I'm just interested in your thoughts on that from the perspective of someone who actually has done that in sort of a bit of a unicorn in that respect, taking that step. And do you think more people from industry are likely to follow that role in what you have done?
1: I mean, I think that's a great question. I think we we would have much more sound technology policy and more effective regulation if more people who understood technology and the, what makes the sector tick, in these kinds of roles. There's no question. But I guess um, as some people referred refer to me as a poacher turned gamekeeper. But um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I 100% agree. I mean, one of the things I loved about being in the technology sector is that there are so many purpose-driven people, and so we mm-hmm. have to remember that when we vil- when we vilify a a particular entity at the time. I mean, when I was at Microsoft, I was in the midst of the antitrust trial. Mm. And it got to the point that I wouldn't tell people who I worked for, because every time I mentioned that I worked for Microsoft, I'd get the, you know, evil empire monopolist Mm. diatribe. Mm. And, you know, I really thought we were trying to make the world a better place. And, you know, certainly in the mid 2000s, in the online safety space, Microsoft did some really in incredible work around developing the child exploitation tracking system and photo DNA and making that available and sponsoring a lot of NGOs in the space. So really pioneered a lot of the online safety work. And my last role there was guiding global policy and outreach around both privacy and safety. So I, I really understand the interplay there. But what I came to realize is Well, first of all, I'd say I know when the leaders are behind an issue that things can really happen. So in 2001, Bill Gates announced the Trustworthy Computing Initiative. Remember when Windows was riddled Mm -hmm. with vulnerabilities, it was considered inherently insecure. He took every single... It was an edict, really. He took every single developer and engineer off, and they recoded every you know, hundreds and millions of lines of code to make it more secure. And then they set up Trustworthy Computing, and I spent three years there to keep you know, on that journey for security. And then privacy was next, and then accessibility. So I came into Trustworthy Computing to work on privacy and safety. And frankly, safety was, started to become an afterthought as Microsoft started to pivot towards being um, an enterprise organization. And so I brought the whole concept of safety by design to the security uh, personnel. And I just, you know, I made that argument that I thought the third pillar of digital trust, a stride, security and privacy should be safety. And I kind of got the little bit of eye roll. And <laughs> so then I sort of realized I tried to be antagonist and, and push and do the right thing all the time. And then you, you get to this point where you re- you recognize 17 years, I've had a good run. I'm probably not going to be able to push this barrow further. And I had a great a great experience there but I decided to pursue other things and it was really interesting landing at Twitter because I you know when I started at Microsoft it was 25,000 people when I left it was 125,000 wow. and Twitter has a big footprint but it's only it was only 3500 people at the time mm-hmm. and talk about I worked with some of the most incredible people on the public policy and philanthropy team all mission-driven people, all wanting, really believing in the power of, of Twitter and social media to speak truth to power, to level voices. But what I started to see was how the platform was being weaponized by people to silence women, to silence vulnerable community. You know, I was there when there was an ISIS bonanza. <laughs> and and um, you could just see that there was incremental investment, but it wasn't monumental. And after a couple of years, uh, I just didn't feel like I could defend the company on the safety record anymore. So I happened to be in a very privileged position that I happened to live in a jurisdiction that decided to have the, the first and only online safety regulator. And it was a pretty rigorous process. Mm. So I'd like to think that I landed that on merit. But I often think to myself, gosh, I don't know how this job could be done effectively if you didn't really understand what makes technology companies tick if -hmm. you can't anticipate their talking points when they walk in the room you know you need to know what their strategies are so we were talking about cda one of the brilliant things the industry did to um, make sure it perpetuated went viral so to speak is is CDA like um, provisions are now embedded in bilateral multilateral trade agreements so even if they overturn CDA mm. they'll have protections. So understanding those things is is really important in terms of game theory and
0: knowing what your next chess move should be. <laughs> Indeed. I've just finished reading Nicole Penroth's book, This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, and that edict you were referring to by Bill Gates back in the early 90s, is what she credits to be the reason why every time you speak to someone who works in this industry, people say, oh, all of the tech companies are bad, but Microsoft is the best. And she keeps coming back to this point throughout her book. So let's turn now and have a look at the new powers that you have recently uh, had, or the office has had bestowed upon it with Australia's new e-safety Act that came into force in January this year. And that act really has has increased the powers that you as a commissioner have i think they probably still aren't as well known as they should be because they're really important powers that provide options for people to do something when they have whether it's cyberbullying or image based abuse online so could you tell us just at a high level what actually are these new powers that you have and how do people access them sure So I I guess I should start by
1: saying, you know, we're, I think, a fairly unique regulatory body. And I suppose I did bring that technology lens with me. And so what policymakers do is they established an agency and there was a bit of prevention and programs in there. But, you know, a lot of focus on regulation and that has grown over time and the size of the organization has quintupled over time as the needs have become clear. But what I had to come in and do as a leader was sort of look at, you know, how How are we actually going to most effectively help Australians? And like it or not, when you apply regulation to an online harm, you're applying it after the harm has been done. So I felt that we really had to have a very strong focus on prevention as well through evidence-based research to see what kind of messaging and education and programs work, particularly for the more vulnerable communities, so that we're arming our citizens with the skills they need to understand and mitigate risks, to also harness the benefits, but in a way that isn't instilling them with fear and amygdala hijack. That's fundamental because we want to prevent the harms from happening in the first place. Then there's the protection, and then there's the proactive change, safety by design, the tech trends and challenges, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But in terms of the actual powers and what's really interesting is, is is there are some different paradigms that different countries around the world are looking at with respect to setting up online safety regulators. So, we've had the online content scheme in place in Australia in one way, shape, or form in the Broadcasting Services Act for more than 20 years. And that deals with illegal content that instructs in crime, pro terrorist content, and child sexual abuse material. And as a result of having those laws for 20 years, almost None um, of the content that we're actually dealing with, particularly child sexual abuse material, is actually hosted in Australia. Mm-hmm. So we've cre- we've created a really hostile environment for hosting um, illegal content. And we're, of course, working in jurisdictions and with jurisdictions where the hosting practices are much more permissive and illegal content's allowed to thrive. So there's that. And that's where we see the bulk of our reports into illegal content. We started with the youth-based cyberbullying scheme. This was set up to be a safety net because there is this inherent power balance that exists between the big tech behemoths and the users. And the companies are getting better at having appeals processes and oversight boards. Harm is happening and is targeting individuals in real time. And the quicker we can get that content taken down, the more relief we're providing a young person. Mm-hmm. So I really tried to bring in the whole idea of compassionate citizen service. These are people who are coming to us in distress, in many cases young people, or their parents or their, the educators, and really taking a wraparound approach. So obviously trying to take the content down where it matters, but, but also referring them to places like Kids Helpline, engaging with school communities to, you know, really address the conflict that's happening within the schoolyards. We've had tremendous success with our image-based abuse scheme, so the non-consensual sharing of intimate images and videos. And I was asked to set up the revenge porn uh, portal, and I said, no, <laughs> oh, I'm not God. going to call it revenge porn. Revenge for what? You know, the lexicon does matter. It really so that does, we, yeah. Because we are, we're also talking about huge um, cultural shifts, where you know sexting amongst young people is becoming a much more normalized ritual. I mean, I talked to a few young people who said that first base is is sending an intimate image to someone they haven't met before, before holding hands or kissing. So to me, that seemed very backwards, <laughs> but that's that's the way it does. And and uh, we certainly saw in the context of COVID, but also because there are a number of sexual extortion scams in operation right now, that we, at one point, we saw a 600% surge in image-based abuse reports. Mm. We've got an 85% success rate in terms of getting that content down almost exclusively from overseas sites, but then we have a, a powerful range. And it's a graduated set of tools of remedial powers that we can compel people to do do things. And if, if a removal- notice is not complied with, or remedial action is not complied with, we can find perpetrators or platforms. And then um, the newest one in terms of individual complaint schemes is around um, serious adult cyber abuse, where in the first two months of that, it's at a very high threshold. And and that was determined by parliament by design, so that we're really tackling content that is veering clearly into the lane of, of online abuse with serious intent to harm, that is menacing, harassing, and offensive in all cases to an ordinary, reasonable person, so that freedom of expression and freedom of opinion isn't captured. And in fact, defamation isn't captured. And unfortunately, a large proportion of the reports that we got in previously under the informal scheme and today are are really about harm to reputation and and defamation. It's it's a very high bar and it needs to be, but you have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. The whole point of having review processes is so that you can look at how wide that aperture needs to be closed or opened, or are there other considerations? For instance, we can look at intersectional factors now in the context of determining serious adult cyber abuse. But we don't have an explicit online hate policy. We're not able to take down content that is dealing with groups. And that may come over time. But this is a bold social experiment. Nobody else in the world is doing this. You know, we're developing SOPs and regulatory schemes and guidance that no other country in the world has yet taken on. And what we're finding now, we're spending a lot of time doing international capacity and capability building because people want to know how we're how we're working operationally.
0: I would also love to drill down on uh, some of those operational questions as well, because you can hear about the legislation, but then understanding how it's implemented and how your office is, is treating these complaints is something that I know is of interest to, to many of our listeners. Before we dive into that side of it, I just wanted to touch on what is often the most common criticism that I hear around the e-safety legislation. And actually, a number of our guests on the podcast have made statements like, well, it's all well and good when we have uh, Julie Immun-Grant as our wonderful E safety commissioner because we trust her. She's got implicit judgment, and that's fine. But the powers do impose significant discretionary power on the e safety commissioner, and a number of people have expressed concern that the use of those discretionary powers going forward in terms of the thresholds for online abuse being serious harms, menacing harassment, etc. That it is a very high threshold. How do you respond to that? That it's not so much a criticism as more of a concern that people hold about the level of discretionary power that sits within this legislation.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting. Some people will say, you know, I'm doing too much. Other people will say, we're not doing enough. We're a toothless tiger. You're not using the powers Mm. you have. So, you're never going to make everyone happy. But I actually think it's fundamentally wrong and, and it's a very complicated legislation and people who purport to be experts in this area. On the one hand, they'll say, you know, you, you're you a censor. And then on the other, they'll say when the MAFs um, situation around alleged IBA and that, that just happened last week, somebody said, well, you know, why are you requiring people to report directly? Um, why don't you, you know, surveil the internet and, you know, respond to media reports and to petitions? And so I do think we probably need to explain, I mean, the thresholds are the thresholds. And who, you know, I can't speak for anybody else who might be in this role and who may take a very different approach, but making out some of these thresholds is not easy at all, and it's something that we aim to get right, and it's just not right to say there aren't checks and balances and protections in. You can go to the ombudsman. That's why they're there. First of all, we've got an internal review process. We've got um, about 35 new points of transparency. Which I actually welcome. Um, that will be—you'll be seeing in our next annual report. If we're asking companies to be transparent and accountable, I think we need to be transparent too. So we—we built new systems so that we can ensure that we're living up to that. So there's an internal review process. If someone doesn't like a a decision, there's obviously FOI, which is being used um, pretty extensively at the moment as well. Uh, You can go to the Ombudsman, you can go to the AAT Tribunal, you can even go to the federal court. Those are external sort of checks and balances, mm-hmm. but I've also built systems internally and worked with, I've got a senior executive group that helps me make decisions. We've got a regulatory action committee where we look at edge cases as a collective, as a group. So again, not one person is making willy-nilly decision. But we're building these governance and these processes to make sure that there's integrity in the process, and I think it would be very unlikely or unusual that somebody would be able to come into this role and unravel all that.
0: Hi, now seems like a good time for a quick housekeeping message. If you like the pod, shout outs on social media, around the water cooler or at the pub are most welcome. If the platform you listen to allows, please leave us a star rating or even better, a short review. These reviews really help us to get the word out. So thank you in advance. Don't forget to let us know what you want to hear on the pod. Email us at techpolicydesign at anu.edu.au. But for now, let's get back to our conversation with Julie. Can you talk us through what happens when your office receives a complaint? So you have these investigative and information gathering powers. How do you actually assess the merit? And you've hinted at that a little bit there. Let's use the adult cyber abuse scheme or if it's easier because it's uh, been in existence longer, happy for you to use the child online bullying Just a sort of a day in the life of someone who is receiving these complaints.
1: Let's look at the um, serious cyberbullying scheme. And we've actually retained the original definition of serious cyberbullying as anything that's seriously harassing, humiliating, intimidating, or threatening. So it's broad enough to capture a broad array of content that's at a seriously sufficient level without... Being too constraining. Because one thing um, I will tell you, we've even seen amongst young people very determined predators. We've seen a process called phoenixing where a young person will set up up to 60, accounts targeting the same child with the same name. So every time one is taken down, another one will pop up. So it's it's a relentless form of cyberbullying. Cyber um, we've even had people go to the links of writing a song and recording it and putting it on Spotify to target and bully a specific child. By design, we're trying to encourage young people to engage in help-seeking behaviors and to start by reporting to the platform where the serious cyberbullying is happening. Now, if that doesn't come down within 24 hours, they or their parents or an educator or a carer that is designated by them can come to us on their behalf to report serious cyberbullying. We have to collect evidence, and and this is why we have people go. It's a complaints-based scheme. All of these are as as guided by Parliament, so that we're not taking down content in mass. We're looking at content that's impacting a specific individual. There may be multiple tweets or multiple posts that kind of build the whole picture, if you will. So they report to us after they've reported to the the platform. Often what we do and the most expeditious way to get it down and what we've done successfully and why we, we build relationships with the platforms is we'll often take informal approach. We'll just say, well, we think it reaches this threshold and this is why. You know, you've got content moderators in places like the Philippines and Romania, Texas, and elsewhere, who have three seconds to a minute to decide whether a particular tweet or post contravenes their terms of service. They're missing all of the context. They often miss cultural context. So we're here to serve as a safety net. So we'll say to the, the platform we think this constitutes serious cyberbullying and this is why, and this is the account and this is the other abusive content we've seen. If we deem it to be at that threshold and the platform doesn't take it down, that's when we consider other forms of, of tools that are available to us, like issuing a um, removal notice. And if the platform doesn't comply, then we can find them up to f- $550,000 per, per violation. But we also have end user notices that we can deploy to try and deter perpetrators. But we look at using that very gingerly and with discretion. Because once you dig into particularly these youth based cyberbullying cases, you know, if, if you're a 14 year old, which is the average age that a child is cyberbullied, and it tends to be peer to peer, it's really a function of conflict happening in this schoolyard playing out in an online space. When you dig down into those layers, you might see that that child is living in out-of-home care, uh, has mental health issues. And so, you know, you you need to think about, you know, would that be too menacing for a government agency to, you know, issue an end user notice or to try and find an individual? So, there, there's a lot that goes into an investigation. And so, it runs the gamut. We've had some investigations that have been so complicated that They take weeks. But we've also had content taken down in as little as 12 minutes, particularly when we identify really, really vulnerable people. There was an example of a a fight video where the child was living in out-of-home care, was trans-Indigenous child, and was being taunted for all of those factors in the fight that was captured. And we saw him as just a very, very vulnerable person. And, you know, it's great. We do use those thresholds gingerly. We go to the the platforms when it reaches that level, and they've we, they've developed a level of trust with us as a trusted flagger, so that they know when we come to them and say we think this needs to come down, and you know, that works in many cases. I think it's going to be tougher with the adult cyber abuse scheme. Mm-hmm and that's why we've got two other sets of powers I'll just touch on which really deal with systems and processes and one of those is the mandatory industry codes and the other is the basic online safety expectations and what's great about the bos in particular is you know it's not a complaint scheme but we can actually look at the systemic failures and all the evidence we've gathered over the past 17 years about how platforms are actually dealing with these issues, where we think the systemic weaknesses are, where we don't think they're um, effectively or consistently enforcing their own policies, and we can compel transparency reports, either periodic or specific. Once we stand these up, there's a six month period. We need to do some consultation and set up the system. But it'll be a very potent tool for naming and shaming and really exposing what companies are and aren't doing and where where the systemic failures
0: are. And I think looking at it on a much broader systems level makes a lot of sense. Um, What you were saying earlier that you step in after the harm has happened, Um, being able to address it at the systems level um, to put in place the structures to prevent this. I mean even I understand one of the focuses of Bose, um, the basic online safety expectations is to have these platforms have more effective complaints mechanisms and that is something that a lot of people would welcome because it's not necessarily that people want to have to go to government. If we have an effective system that is working through the platforms that actually gets content taken down, that's great. But it's actually compelling the companies to put the time and effort into developing those complaints mechanisms.
1: Right. And, you know, if you think about the Safety by Design initiative, which I think yes. you know quite a bit of, uh, about, which is really a voluntary cultural change program. And having been in industry, I know this is not something you do to them, you do with them. Mm. But if they're actually, assessing their risks through our tools or through their own mechanisms and building the safety in it at the front end, then they're going to be living up to these basic online safety expectations. And, uh, you know, I think they need to approach it like an arms race. You know, people are going to find creative ways to weaponize the platforms. They need to continue, you know, patching the potholes and um, erecting the guardrails and making sure there are no black spots. Um, to use, you know, um, a number of road analogies. But I also think it's important that, um, you know, there's other jurisdictions that are talking up big, you know, these massive systemic, you know, enforcement actions with huge penalties. I don't think it's an either-or proposition. I think one of the most important things we do do here at eSafety is provide relief to people who have nowhere else to go. We're also collecting a very robust evidence base about where the systemic failures are. I think the systemic powers are important, and we may want more robust powers and penalties over time. But I'm also a little bit skeptical that it's going to change things at a hugely systemic level. Companies may build in protections and lifts our standards a bit, but people are, are abused online at the interpersonal level. Mm-hmm. And that's how content moderation is done. You can't say for sure that if a, a major systemic case is taken, that that's going to change the internet. Nothing will without, I think, multiple interventions. And, and that's where the proactive change work comes in as well.
0: And what you were saying there, that you provide relief to people who have nowhere else to go, I think that probably leads very nicely into the next question that we have, which is, in an earlier podcast episode Dr Emily Vandenagel commented on the fact that it would be lovely to hear more stories about how these powers are being used positively and proactively and delivering outcomes for people as opposed to uh, just the sort of legislative conversation you've shared one story there about how you stepped in with the the fight video are there any others that sort of that you have been involved in over the years that stick with you that you're able to share you know respectfully of the people who have experienced this? This is
1: really the rub. So many of these issues, we really need to protect yeah. victim and survivor confidentiality and privacy. And there are many times we've actually had very successful outcomes around highly publicized cases. And, you know, I can't always um, tell the story out of. Respect for um, the privacy of the in- individual, and I, I appreciate that because you know data only tells you so much. We need to be telling stories with our data, and we've got a number of of, of compelling stories. And, you know, we we've had people come to us who have had more than um, you know 400 pieces of image-based abuse spread mm-hmm. about them, and our investigators went through every single URL to try and get that taken down we've had people show up at our office, international visitors who have fallen prey to sexual extortion scams and, you know, find us on the internet. And one of the things we actually had to do is change our image-based abuse form because people around the world were finding out we were the only Kind of government agency that mm. was providing this kind of service and we had really desperate people coming to us from all over the world just saying please help us get this content taken down um, you know there was a picture of me taken without a hijab, and and if that gets to my family in in pakistan there are really serious you know implications and there are a range of stories one of the stories was just told by the new york times around uh, a 2019 investigation um, by a uh, father from WA who contacted us about his son stumbling upon a a website that gave him explicit instruction, but also encouragement to take his own life and, and told him how to make make a poison to kill himself. And he did. Mm. And we did a huge investigation to this website. We, you know, identified um, there were some really bad people who were owning it. Um, we w- were successful in working with the AFP and having it blocked, but it was still very discoverable. And we went to Google and Microsoft, who owned Bing at the time, or still owns Bing, but neither of them would de-index it. Because they said they were holding up a mirror to society and, you know, who are we to step in if it's not patently, um, you know, illegal. So we've learned a lot from these stories over the years and we've used that to strengthen our legislation. So we now have powers where I can compel, I can issue a link deletion notice. If there's illegal or seriously harmful content and Google or Bing refuses to delink it, obviously there's a lot of process that's involved and mm-hmm. it has to be at the right level. It's been a three-part story in the New York Times, and it's it's really about you know there are hundreds of families around the world who have lost children and family members mm-hmm. um, because of this website. I don't want to talk about the name, but there, we do so many of these investigations where we see the worst of humanity, where where we're able to help people and we're not always able
0: to talk about it. We'll put a link to that New York Times article in the pod notes and that really does bring us towards the close of the podcast. There were many more questions that I had uh, that I wanted to ask you, Julie, but as always, time is precious and we really appreciate you having given us the time that you have. Are there any other books or podcasts or recommendations? We always end with this question for people in terms of, you know, things that you have read over the years or recently that you come back to that are those sort of seminal pieces of wisdom or people you follow on Twitter, it's up to you. Where do you go to for interesting information about this stuff?
1: my go-to podcast is the pivot podcast with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. And it's so funny. They're, they're always talking about if they just get some people who worked in the technology industry into the government, I'm like, Hey, Hey, we're over here. We're doing that. We're doing that. We're doing that. You know, and, and, and that is, it was really, really challenging for a small little uh, Antipodean agency to kind of achieve cut through. Cause I do think we're doing tremendous um, world leading things and, love to get the word out um, more but I love that I do like reading leadership and management books and you know I do read wired and I read Casey Newton's platformer so I try and keep across everything that's happening in the industry and that's why we're thinking about paradigm shifts whether it's web 3.0 world and or, or immersive technologies in the metaverse we try and be not too far ahead but but at least on the leading edge, we can think about the, the policy implications before they happen and you know start building the momentum around governance structures and safety by design and these future paradigm shifts. But the one I just read, I went back home to see my family for the first time in three years last week, was the culture code. I think we've built a really good, dynamic, innovative, and nimble culture, I think particularly for a government agency. Um, It was a very different place when I came here. And I guess what made me proud is that my leadership based on instinct is now kind of, you know, the idea of being being a vulnerable leader, the idea of creating a sense of safety that people can try and experiment and they can fail. I've tried to flatten hierarchies a little bit and get people working across silos. And these are challenging to do, particularly for people who come up through more traditional organizations in the public sector where there's a lot of hierarchy and status and process and doing things the way you've always done them is something that's kind of, you know, almost beaten into people. And I'm, I'm telling them to do exactly the opposite. <laughs> That resonated with me. That I think we've created that kind of culture.
0: Culture code. I'll have to look that one up. Um, thank you so much for being with us, uh, Julie. I, I think you spoke of um, of often you, but also your team having to see the worst of humanity, and so you know. I, and you also cop quite a bit of criticism as well. So I would like to, on behalf of myself, but also all of the people that you've helped. Thank you for the work that you do for your integrity and for your passion we very much appreciate it and also uh, thank you also for your support that you offer for the Tech Policy Design Centre we'll talk again soon thank you so much thanks for listening as always please do reach out and let us know what you want to hear on future episodes of the pod get in touch and get involved Talking Tech Policy is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University this episode was produced by Jack Fox Ben Gowdy provided invaluable research support. You can follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at Tech Policy Design or Google us and follow the links. Thank you for listening and please do rate us or leave us a review.